You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. We first have to recognize that we have a big problem on our hand. And the problem is that at the moment, we're exposed to a flood of misinformation and fake news. And we need to do something about that because you can't run a democracy if people are believing in things that never happened. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Hacking Humans podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. How are you? I'm doing great. And each week, the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast looks behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. We've got some good stories to share this week. Later in the show, we'll have my interview with Stephen Lewandowski. He's a professor of cognitive science at the University of Bristol. Interesting gent. And we are back. Uh, Joe, before we dive in with our stories here, a quick little bit of follow-up. Last week, we talked about uh, Google Chrome and the green lock icon that Google Chrome displays when you are at a secure website. Well, it turns out Google is actually changing Chrome's behavior on how it's going to handle that green lock. Mm -hmm. Coming in September, that lock will no longer be green. And then eventually, the lock's going to go away altogether. Right. So this is just an interface change. It doesn't change any of the backend functionality of HTTPS or the protocol or anything. Right. What Google is saying here, because Google is the maker of Chrome... Or maybe it's Alphabet. I don't know. But it's part of Google, (laughs) part of the Google universe. Yeah, it's a distinction without a difference. Right. So what this is, it's an update to the user interface. Uh, Google has decided that HTTPS is so commonplace now that they're no longer going to tell you when your website connection is secured with HTTPS. They're going to tell you when it's not secure with HTTPS Mm. because that is more important. I think this is a good design decision because... It's taking for granted that the connection should be secure, and if it isn't secure, then the user will be notified that the security portion is missing. Yeah, and they made the point that 83% of websites that are visited by people using Chrome on the Windows side are HTTPS. Right. So that's that's the norm these days. That's the majority, exactly. The vast majority of your traffic is going over HTTPS. So rather than telling you what the norm is, you should be notified when something is out of the norm. And I think this is a good a good decision. All right. Good stuff. All right. Well, let's move on to our stories here this week. What do you have for us? I have a story from the Wall Street Journal. Hmm. Uh, on May 30th, the Wall Street Journal had a special section on cybersecurity. And there was an article by Chris Cornelis called The Anatomy of a Phishing Attack. Mm-hmm. And in the article, Chris talked to Sean Moyer from Atreides Partners, who broke down the process of a phishing attack into four phases. And the first phase was surveillance. Every hacking book <laughs> that's worth its salt says this is the first phase in any attack, and, and phishing is no exception. Uh, if your company is going to be targeted for a phishing attack, there's going to be some surveillance done in the beginning of the attack. This differentiates it from just run-of-the-mill spamming. Right, right. So broad net phishing attacks, if I'm going to just you know send out a whole mess of attacks and try to get somebody to click on a, a site just because you know 1% to 3% of the people will fall for it, mm-hmm. th- then I, I might not do the research into the company. But if I'm going to target a company, I'm definitely going to do the research into the company. Right. And Moyer was, pointed out something very interesting. He said that new employees are especially vulnerable here. Hmm. because they're not familiar with the company's processes. Right. They may 
think that all these emails from HR are reasonable, right? You know, I'm just a new employee and I just got somebody sending me emails to run the, you know, click on this link to go sign up for my benefits mm-hmm. and it's a malicious link. Right. Yeah. So that's an interesting perspective that Moyer brings to this. Yeah. Important to, uh, I guess, in your onboarding process to pay special attention to the vulnerability of your new employees to these sorts of social engineering attacks. Right. And that's just part of the old adage that the security has to be part of the culture all across the organization. Mm hmm. So the second phase he has is the attack. And this is where they send out the payload and they send the typical email with the malicious attachment of the malicious link. But Moyer also talks about the possibility of a payload that no firewall can stop of sending somebody a physical DVD or CD with some malicious software on it Hmm. and some instructions. And it looks, you know, looks legit. It's going to have company logo on it and everything. It's really cheap to print these things up and, and right. get them to look like they, they should look. So it says, welcome to the company or here's our or, new compliance package or right. something like that. You're a new employee. Please run this software Say and and something more believable than that. You know, right. Somebody's going to spend more time than I am on it. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, and then he says that phase three is once inside and once the people that have been targeted have used the software, clicked on the link or installed it, whatever. They're going to do what they can. And that's, they're going to spread through the network or they're going to try to steal some data. They're going to try to lock some systems uh, and encrypt the data for ransomware. They're going to see if they can persist and they're going to see if they can get botnets or maybe mine cryptocurrency or something. And then he says, phase four is the payoff. And this is where these attackers get what they came after. Mm. Of course, if the data is what they came after, you know, this is like some kind of intellectual property theft, then once the data is exfiltrated, the attack is over. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to go away. They could persist and try to get more out of it. Right. They may try to mine cryptocurrencies, in which case the payoff is literal and continuous, (laughs) right? They're just going to always be getting small payments based on your consumption of electricity and your processing power. Uh, They may try to collect a ransom, and it may use the target organization's computers for other malicious activities like uh, botnets or spamming. Yeah, it really speaks to that insider threat that we always talk about, you know, particularly what you're saying about sending someone a physical item, a CD, a DVD, you know, maybe a flash drive. A flash or something drive like would that be another great says, example. Yeah, yeah, that says, good news, here's the uh, software that you need to, uh, whatever, you know, access your benefits package or something like that. Right. And, and, it, and people fall for it. And they do. And and the reason they fall for it is not not because, again, not because they're being stupid, but just because this makes perfect logical sense for me to receive this at this point in time. Right. So it's important for your HR team, your onboarding team to set expectations with the people who are joining your organization to I say, would say Here, here's what you can expect. We will never do this. You know, right. We will never ask you for your password. We, you know, right. So that uh, you're planting those seeds uh, of what's normal. Yeah. A security briefing should be part of day one orientation. Sure. Sure. No, it's interesting. Uh, interesting to see the Wall Street Journal uh, covering this and, uh, you know, good words of wisdom. Yep. All right. So my story this week has to do with the notion of pretexting and uh, also dealing with HR, which is, of course, a, a common way to get into uh, organizations. And uh, pretexting is, is really just the act of creating some sort of invented scenario to persuade someone, a victim, to release information or to do something. Right. That's the pretext, right? But uh, it's sort of tying into what you were saying, that it comes down to doing research, you know, figuring out what's going to work. Um, and they target HR because HR has a lot of valuable information. 
And HR is one of the departments in an organization that typically has to open a lot of attachments or has to click on links because they're getting all sorts of random things from employees, from providers, from healthcare providers, from uh, compliance organizations and all that sort of stuff. Right. It's a pretty bad combination because they're in charge of a lot of very important and sensitive data that's valuable. Right. So the, the, the bad guys have figured out that pretexting works. It's a good mm-hmm. social engineering technique. In fact, um, Verizon, in their, uh, their data report uh, that they come out with every year, they found that pretexting incidents rose by over 400% over the last year. But the attackers are getting better. Yes, the attackers are getting better. But how much are they recognizing that this still works? In other words, how much are the technical defenses getting better? Right. So that in order to get in you need to take advantage of the human element where perhaps there were technical ways to get in. And, and as those defenses get more sophisticated. Right. I think I think you're exactly on point here that that this is exactly what they have to do. The market is driving them. If you think of this as a market, right? Yeah. The economic forces are saying now the least costly way to go through is to try to hack a human. Right. So what can you do? Obviously, you know, we talk about training being a big part of this uh, and uh, setting expectations, uh, having people be on the lookout. Uh, there are some technical solutions to this sort of thing. There are companies who offer, uh, I guess you call them virtual browsers, where if you're someone who has to open a lot of links, you can actually open those links sort of remotely within a, I, I sort of think of the bomb squad, you know, right. where the, where right. they, you know, they come and they put a, put something over top of uh, the bomb and, and remotely detonate it. Yeah. You know, so you can remotely detonate your links and, and, and things like that. That's exactly right. There are virtual environments that allow you to kind of explore these websites. And right. then if, if the virtual environment gets infected, you just destroy it. It's gone. Yeah, some of them are cloud-based too. So, yes. you know, it's an interesting interesting way of protection. I think if I were someone who had to deal with this or I, I was in charge of trying to protect an HR department, that would certainly be yeah. something worth exploring at the very least. Yes, and I, I might have them uh, use computers like Chromebooks if they can get away with it. Those mm. are, mm-hmm. you know, a lot harder. They're more managed. Right. Uh, a lot harder to, they, you know, they're more continually updated, a lot harder to, to hack into. Yeah, no, it's interesting. So uh, you know, as HR is, uh, it has a, a bullseye on their back. Yeah, they do uh, because of all the things they deal with. So uh, you know, interesting story and a good uh, cautionary tale there. All right, moving on. It's time for our catch of the day. So this came to us from a listener who also happens to be a realtor. And this person got an introductory email that said they were looking for some help. They're moving into town and they needed help buying a home. And so this realtor sent some information, just telling them a little more about themselves. And then they got this reply back, this email back from them. I'm going to read it to you now. So here we go. It said, hello, sorry, I'm only replying to you now. You must have tried calling. I had a surgery last weekend, which impeded my speech temporarily. Hence, I can't take any calls. Nonetheless, I still aim to move by May as my current home sale closes in May. I will be buying cash, so hopefully that can speed up the process since I will have no contingencies. My budget will not be more than $800,000. Please advise what type of homes I can get so we can place our offer immediately. I have also attached my personal information, closing statement showing proceeds from the sale of my home, and bank statement showing available funds shared securely using DocuSign. I believe this would help facilitate your search. I look forward to some positive news on your findings. So, what do we make of this? There's a couple of red flags in here already. 
for me. One is that it's looking for a very quick call to action, right? right? That's looking to get you to do something because they're trying to short-circuit your thinking process. Right, time's a-wasting. Time's a-wasting, right, and creating a sense of urgency. Right. Number two, they just had, quote, a surgery, mm-hmm. <clears throat> which doesn't seem like standard English is a little bit broken. Mm-hmm. Um, that surgery has caused them to lose their voice. Right. I don't know about you, but if I was in, a, in that kind of a situation where I had surgery and wasn't able to talk, I don't know that I'd be trying to negotiate real estate deals at that, at <laughs> yes. that point in my life. I might be taking a break for yeah, a couple of weeks. Yeah, I might be just weeks. taking it easy and relaxing. Right. It, it is interesting that a surgery would stop me from communicating with you vocally. Right. Right. And that, that to me is also another red flag. So there's a couple of red flags in here. What I think is interesting, even if you think this is a scam, this might still work on you. Hmm. And here's how. If you think this is a scam, you'll be looking for the payoff of maybe this person is trying to bilk me out of some money here. So maybe I want to take a look at these documents. Right. Right. But the documents in this case were the were the items that were malicious, correct? Correct. What they're claiming is a DocuSign document is actually the payload. Is the payload for the for the message. And just to be clear, I mean DocuSign is a legitimate way right. that folks can share items like this securely online. Not only does this have the opportunity to work on the level of, yes, just open these documents and take a look at this. HUD one, which is uh, a real estate document for a closing of a house, and right. then that then you got the malicious payload. But maybe from a different perspective, like, hey, this might be fishy. This guy might be trying to get access to my accounts. Well, let's see what he's saying he has here, and then mm-hmm. so there's there's at least two levels of thought process where I can see this going to still infect somebody, even though they're suspicious. Right. So we've got a, a call to action. We want, someone wants to move quickly. Right. And of course, the realtor wants to provide good customer service. Yes. They have the potential here to make a, a sizable sale. An $800,000 home is nothing to nothing to sneeze at. That's right. And so uh, I think it's plausible that uh, folks could fall for this. It's also fairly targeted. And realtors, I think it's that's an easy group to be able to pull their information off of online, uh, publicly available they, sources. They publicize themselves because they have to, because that's the marketing they need to do to get business. All right. Well, it's uh, certainly a cautionary tale. This is a, to me, it was an interesting example of rather than just a, a broad shotgun approach, that these folks actually targeted a specific line of business right. and, and crafted their message to hit those folks. And they probably did send out a broad shotgun. Each little ball of shot was only going towards a realtor. Yeah. All right. It's a good one. It is. I I think this is a very well-crafted phishing email. Yep. And uh, fortunately, in this case, uh, this person did not fall for it. He he was suspicious and he sent it to his uh, IT people who had a look at it. And sure enough, they found the malicious payload within that uh, attached document. Very good. All's well that ends well, but uh, it's one to look out for. All right. Joe, earlier in the week, I spoke with Stephen Lewandowski. He's a professor of cognitive science at the University of Bristol. He studies misinformation and the effects of propaganda, Ah. which, of course, makes him the perfect guest for this show. Yes, it does. (laughs) Here's my interview with Stephen Lewandowski. We first have to recognize that we have a big problem on our hand. And the problem is that at the moment, we're exposed to a flood of misinformation and fake news. And we need to do something about that because you can't run a democracy if people are believing in things that never happened. Can you walk us through the the evolution of this? I sort of saw it coming, but it seems like we've reached a new level, as you describe, fake news, higher than what we've ever had before. 
Yeah, I think that's true. And there's a number of reasons for that. I think, first of all, it's the increasing use of social media. So more people are hooked up to social media than ever before. And that's continues to increase dramatically. And connected to that, the ability of political operatives to exploit that connectivity and to bombard us with messages that are sometimes of very dubious provenance and do not uh, speak the truth. Can you take us through some of the science behind that? Why are people so susceptible to these things? That's sort of the the million-dollar question, isn't it? And there's a number of factors. First of all, the most important factor to my mind is to consider the fact that as we evolved, as we were living, you know, in caves or in small tribes thousands of years ago, we learned that we have to trust the people around us and that pretty much all the time everybody was telling us the truth. Even today, that is still the case. We teach our children not to lie. We typically do not lie to each other in a family context. We do not lie to people on the street when they ask us what time it is. So there is a very good reason for us as human beings to believe what other people are telling us. And that is our default assumption. All of us go through life believing the things that people tell us. The problem, obviously, with that is that it breaks down if we're exposed to sources that are not telling us the truth. Unfortunately, it's always been the case in politics, but it's now reached a new level with a multitude of actors out on social media who are disseminating messages that are politically motivated but have no basis in fact. What is different now is the ability to target individuals to a degree of specificity that until recently was was unheard of. Let me give you an example. There is fairly good evidence to suggest that if I have access to about 300 of your Facebook likes, that I can then infer your personality with greater accuracy than your own spouse. Hmm. So... If I know what you do on Facebook, then I know your personality. And of course, the Facebook business model is based on selling information about yourself. If you use Facebook, you're the product, basically. They're marketing you to advertisers. Once I know your personality, what I can do is I can exploit your unique vulnerabilities because I can figure out what messages people of a certain personality type are susceptible to. And there's research to you know, explain how that is done and how we can do that. What then happens next is that I can target individuals on social media based on their personality, knowing that the message I'm sending them is exploiting a unique vulnerability that enables me maybe to change your behavior. And if I do that on a large scale to millions of people, then, for example, I might discourage people to go and vote if they're likely to vote for the other candidate. And then through that, I can have an effect on elections that 10 or 20 years ago would have been unthinkable because we wouldn't have been able to target individuals in that manner. Again, uh, using the parallel of advertising, and we have policy, we have laws preventing advertisers from falsely advertising things. Is this a, a case where policy is lagging behind? This fake news, this false information is allowed to be distributed without any ramifications? Well, I think definitely we, we do have a vacuum of a lot of things and, and regulation. 
and law is probably one of those. But I think it goes even deeper than that, because let's consider the implications of what I've just said. What it basically means is that if I'm running a political operation, a campaign for whatever, a candidate or a referendum, what I can do is I can target the population with messages that are customized to exploit them. Neither the recipients nor my political opponents will ever know that. The recipients don't know that they're being manipulated. My political opponent doesn't even know what I'm saying to people out there because it is all customized potentially and it is taking place in darkness. By that, I mean that there is no public debate. There is just a private attempt to manipulate people. Now, to my mind, that is completely undermining the very idea of a democracy because the idea of a democracy is to have a marketplace of ideas, a public space in which politicians and the public are having an ongoing conversation and they battle out different visions for the future and how to deal with problems. Now, that can only happen if everybody knows what everybody else is saying so you can respond to that. But if I'm on social media and I'm manipulating people with messages that no one other than them ever sees, then my opponent has no hope in hell of, of debating that. And that, I think, is you know a largely overlooked, but to me, most important problem about this customized political advertising on Facebook and elsewhere. And do you have in mind any potential solutions to it? Well, I think we have to entertain the possibility of regulating the process by which information is disseminated. I'm totally not in favor of any kind of censorship or regulation of content, but I think it is quite possible for us in a democracy to regulate the process by which information is disseminated. And so, for example, what we have right now is that we don't know what political operatives are saying to people on Facebook. We have absolutely no idea because the messages are not public. So an easy and obvious solution, a first step, is to require that anybody who's running a political campaign, that they make all their messages available to the public in a public repository where, you know, the public and political opponents can go and they can find out what is being said. And then they have an opportunity to engage with those messages and to actually have a democratic debate about them. Now, what does the science say about the ability to equip people to protect themselves against this sort of thing? Can you educate people to be skeptical so that they can have a sense for when someone's trying to manipulate them? Well, that's a very good question. And that is one of the lines of research I've been pursuing with colleagues over the last few years. And the answer is... Uh, somewhat encouraging, at least. We've run a number of experiments now where we have exposed people to a historical misinformation campaign that was done, for example, by the tobacco industry in the 1950s and 60s. Hmm. And we pointed out to people in our studies, look here, this is what the tobacco industry used to do. And things like, you know, creating fake experts who then claim that smoking is in fact not bad for you, despite all the medical evidence to the contrary. And we explained how the tobacco industry did this and what the consequences were of that disinformation campaign and so on. Once you've done that to people, if you then expose them to 
misinformation about a completely different issue. In our experiments, it was about climate change. If you then present people with misinformation about climate change that's using the same rhetorical technique, namely the use of fake experts, then people are seemingly inoculated against that misinformation because Mm. they spot the overlap with what they've just been told about how people in the 1950s and 60s were misinformed by the tobacco industry. Does your research indicate that it has to do with the that inoculation being something that they don't really have any skin in the game with, you know, something from the past, so they don't have an emotional component to choosing a side that they're going to take? Well, that's a very good point. Certainly during the inoculation phase, when you're informing people about techniques, you probably do not want to use something that is current and that is sort of emotionally uh, arousing in the moment. So you're absolutely right. You're better off teaching people on something that in retrospect, anybody can agree on or, or that is you know completely historical and no one cares about it anymore. But having done that, What our experiments showed is that you can then expose people to contemporary issues that are, in fact, hotly contested, such as climate change. And one of the remarkable uh, findings in our study was that the inoculation was particularly effective for political conservatives. Even though political conservatives normally, that is without inoculation, are most predisposed to be skeptical about climate change and its uh, human causes. By telling them, hey, you've been misled in the past, they seem to become very alert towards similar attempts to mislead them now and in fact said, whoa, 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 (laughs) no, I don't like being misled. Interesting. Now, uh, what is your advice to people who are out there trying to protect themselves against uh, everyday social engineering, you know, phishing attempts, uh, ways that people are trying to influence them politically? Do you have any uh, broad advice for how people can go about their day to day lives and uh, do a better job protecting themselves? Well, <laughs> one easy way is to get off Facebook. Um, if, you, if, if you feel that you can do that without compromising your quality of life, then, uh, you know, if you don't have much to lose, why not? Because that is a place where you will be exposed to a lot of dubious information. But even if you don't take that radical step, there, there are ways of making sure that you examine the trustworthiness of a source or at the very least you're reading what it is before you're sharing it or for. It. Because part of the problem we're having now is that people read a headline and then they click on it to forward it to all their friends. And the problem with that is that if you don't read what it is that you're forwarding, then you're just becoming part of the problem. You're not part of the solution. So at the very least, read things before you forward them. Invest that time as a courtesy to your friends and family, right? Exactly. All right. Well, Stephen, again, thanks for taking the time for us. You bet. So, interesting uh, gentleman, eh? Yes, that's an excellent interview. I'm going to make that interview mandatory for all my Facebook friends. (laughs) (laughs) What what were some of the takeaways for you from that? The first thing I was absolutely astounded by is that 300 likes are enough to categorize you more accurately than your spouse can categorize Mm -hmm. you. That's remarkable. Yeah. And then the customized political advertising that's happening outside of the open forum. And I like the idea of his policy of full disclosure for campaigns that they have to list all their ads that they run and to whom they're targeted. Right. But here's my question about that. 
How are you going to get these policies enacted by the people they directly impact? Hmm. I just don't think that politicians are going to be disposed to enacting these policies, right? Uh, you know, because it's going to directly impact their ability to campaign. Mm-hmm. And I'm just not hopeful that here in the, in the states, at least, we can get something like that through. But for the time being, in fact, probably forever, my personal policy is I don't get my political news from Facebook or any social media. Hmm. If I see something going across my Facebook feed, I immediately go up to the uh, little icon in the right and I say block these kind of posts. I don't want to see your political opinion on Hmm. Facebook because Facebook is a terrible environment for political discussion. Yeah, interesting. Well, thanks to all of you for listening, and thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more about them at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technology. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Editor is John Petrick. Technical editor is Chris Russell. Executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening.